that one of Iran's greatest uh, theater directors and film directors designs the stage for us, Professor Bezayi. Uh, it is not every day where you can get that. Uh, I would also like to offer a special welcome to one of Iran's truly most remarkable educators. Uh, many of uh, our students at Stanford are graduates of Sharif University, it used to be called the Arya Mehr University. One of the professors just walked in, who is a, a wonderful addition to Stanford now. And the director of Sharif University, or Arya Mehr University, the father of Dr. Zarghami, Dr. Zarghami Sr., is here with us, and I'd like to offer him a special one. What he and a few others did under the Shah to turn that university into the gem of probably technological universities in the Middle East and one of the gems of the world, I think is one of the most remarkable feats of pedagogy. And Iran and the youth of Iran uh, and Stanford University that has benefited from Sharif aplenty owes them a great deal of gratitude. Uh, before uh, saying a few words about our speaker, I want to make two announcements about uh, our uh, events, uh, a couple of other events coming up this week. Uh, this Friday, uh, we have the second part uh, of uh, a workshop by Professor Bezai. Uh, he's going to be talking about the myth of Arash in the same room, same time. Uh, 7 o'clock, uh, and on Saturday, we're going to be showing at Annenberg Auditorium, uh, we're going to be showing a new film by Maziar Bahari. It's about the uh, Baha'i schools in Iran, the university, the Baha'i University School in Iran. It's a new film that Maziar Bahari has made. The film has English subtitles, so those who still don't uh, speak Persian, and there aren't too many uh, who are going to be left at Stanford very soon, uh, are welcome to come. Uh, these are the two events for the, this week. Uh, our speaker tonight is uh, what uh, they used to call in the uh, 19th century, end of 19th century, a gentleman scholar, uh, a man of leisure who in his leisure uh, engaged in great work of scholarship. Uh, he's not a man of complete leisure. He still works for his life. Uh, he does, has not uh, inherited, uh, other than a good name, a great fortune. Uh, and a good name is a great fortune. Uh, but uh, he, he is a lawyer by training, uh, a very accomplished uh, lawyer by training, who has spent a small life uh, studying his passion. Uh, Cyrus, studying his history. Uh, I remember my father always telling me, go study medicine, and if you want to study, po study politics, do it on part-time. Uh, <laughs> now, he has taken all the Persian father's advice to heart. He has become a very successful lawyer, and on the side, he has studied history and has written what I think is now clearly the definitive study of the life of a enormously important character in Iranian history, uh, Cyrus. We are very proud to have him here. Welcome, Dr. Zahran.
Thank you very much for that kind introduction. I will say one thing, I've never been accused of being a gentleman before, so. <laughs> Anyways, it is an honor to be here. Stanford University, obviously one of the great academic institutions in the world. Uh, I'm particularly grateful to Dr. Milani, not just for this opportunity to speak, but also because of the fellowship he granted me here several years ago, which allowed me to properly research and bring to completion the final stages of my book. So we're here today to talk about Cyrus the Great and my recently published book, Discovering Cyrus, the Persian Conqueror Astride the Ancient World. I'm very proud to say that this book is the most detailed, serious biographical treatment of Cyrus to date in the English language. And I think that it's very timely and in fact quite overdue because Cyrus was, as Dr. Milani said, one of the true giants of history. You know, when you read the classical literature, it's the names of three leaders that consistently stand out. These would be Cyrus, Alexander, and Caesar. Cyrus was the earliest of the three, and he was the role model for Alexander. Alexander's own historians tell us this, and to an extent, he also influenced Julius Caesar, but he is also the least well understood. Now, there are many different reasons for this. One is that the ancient Iranians did not preserve their history in a reliable format that has survived today. The Iranians did not really believe in the written word. Instead, they preferred to tell their history and to transmit it by word of mouth, word to word. And they call this in Iran, sine chest to chest, really. And so what happened was that the history was lost over time. And one of the great ironies is that Cyrus, although he was loved by the Persians of his own day, we're told that they regarded him as the father because they said he was kind and he provided for his people, his name was forgotten within Iran and within Fars, which was his homeland, less than 500 years after he died. His history and his name were preserved outside of Iran by the Greeks, by the Romans, by the Armenians, and by the Jews, and the, the authors of the Hebrew Bible. But there's another reason, too, that I think that Cyrus's name was forgotten, and that's because he's not really part of the Western canon of history, if you would. You know, the foundations of Western civilization or Western thinking, cultural identity, they go back to the time of the Persian Wars in the late 5th century BC. These were the wars prosecuted by Cyrus's immediate successors, Darius I and his son Xerxes, against the city-states of mainland Greece. And the Persians were capitulated, they were cast as the others in this conflict, fighting the Greeks who were the champions of democracy and personal freedom. And so you see this, this portrayal of the Persians as foreigners who have not left anything behind in the way of a meaningful cultural legacy. This has per persisted through time, and you see it most recently in the movie The 300, the sequel of which came out last month. And I say this because I don't want to say that Hollywood, for example, made a movie that's not historically accurate because they've never really done anything of the sort, but it's a shame because I think Cyrus and the Persians have, in fact, left a very meaningful legacy for the West and for modern society, and that's the notion of globalism. The ability to integrate different cultures, different religions into a single society whereby the rights of all are respected, this is really something that Cyrus did that had not been done successfully before him. So who was Cyrus and what did he do? In the way of an executive overview, I'd say the following. Cyrus was first and foremost the founder of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Achaemenid is the name given to this state because it was also the name of the dynasty of kings to which Cyrus belonged. The empire that Cyrus founded was the greatest state in the then history of the world. It was more than four times the size of its largest predecessor, and Cyrus founded it largely from scratch. 
You see in this map here, the area shaded in purple, that's the area that Cyrus conquered in his own lifetime. And the empire stretched from northwestern India all the way to the Aegean Sea, and from the Central Asia all the way to the Sinai Desert. It would expand further during the reigns of his successors. His son Cambyses II added Egypt to the empire. That's the, uh, the areas in orange are the ones that were added by his successors. So Cambyses added Egypt, and then Darius I, who would become Cyrus's son-in-law, added parts of India, Central Asia, the Caucasus Mountains, and he also extended the empire into Europe, as far north as the Danube River. Now, the Persian Empire was unprecedented in its cultural and religious diversity. And aside from founding this empire, what Cyrus did was he created an ethos of imperial rule and statecraft that allowed the Persians to maintain their far-flung boundaries for over two centuries with what Arnold Toynbee, the famous historian, has described as a remarkably and impressively modest exertion of force. What this means is that the Persians did not have to fight as hard as other empire masters to maintain their empire, and the reason for this is that Persian rule was relatively easygoing. Cyrus and his successors put great stock in respecting the cultures and the religions of their foreign subjects, and so Persian rule was not resented as was the rule of some of the empires that preceded and then came afterward. Consistent with this, Cyrus introduced an element of chivalry and humanitarianism to warfare that was previously lacking, as we're going to see Cyrus's habit was to spare the lives of his enemies. And he was also, and I don't think he receives nearly enough credit for this, he was he spent a lot of energy and a lot of time, and he ultimately sacrificed his life toward the end of safeguarding the great centers of Near Eastern civilization from the nomadic tribes of Central Asia. And we're going to talk about all these points. Now, my book is more than just the biography of Cyrus. It's really an exploration of Iran, of the idea of Iran as a nation, and of the origin of some very age-old and prevalent Iranian cultural institutions. So we should begin by talking about the Iranians. Who were they, and where did they come from? Well, the Iranians were an Indo-European people, and what that means is that they spoke languages and dialects that were very closely related in antiquity to Sanskrit, but also more distantly to Greek and to Latin. They entered the Iranian plateau, and that's the geographical formation that's roughly the same size and has the same boundaries as the present-day state of Iran in the second millennium BCE. So that's between 500 to maybe even 1,000 or 1,500 years before Cyrus reigned. The Iranians were divided into many different tribes and nations. The two most important for our purposes were the Medes and the Persians. The Medes settled in the northwestern corner of the Iranian plateau between the present-day sites of Kerman Shah, Hamadan, Tabriz, and Tehran, whereas the Persians settled farther to the south, near Shiraz, and of course the ancient sites of Persepolis and Pasargadai. What were the ancient Iranians famous for? Well, their number one attribute, if you go by what their neighbors said, was that they were excellent horsemen and horse breeders, and you see that in this pair of illustrations here. The image on top is a line drawing from the cylinder seal of Cyrus I. This would be the grandfather of our Cyrus, who is Cyrus II in the Achaemenid pedigree, and it shows him wearing the traditional Iranian riding costume. This consists of a pointed hood. It looks almost like a Santa Claus hat. He's on a horse. He has a tight-fitting tunic, and he's throwing a spear at his enemies. The image on the bottom shows Median tribute bearers. This is an Assyrian relief. It shows Median tribute bearers bringing gifts of war horses to the Assyrian king Sargon II. 
Now, the Assyrian Empire was very important and influential in the early history of Iran. And you really can't tell the story of Cyrus without first getting into the Assyrians and what they did and how they ruled. The Assyrian Empire was very well organized. It was very well run. But it was also a state that had an ideology predicated on terror. The Assyrian kings used calculated acts of violence to cow their foreign subjects into submission, and they broadcast their ability to do harm and inflict damage upon others, both in their monumental art and in their royal inscriptions. And as we'll see, as we'll talk about, the Persians under Cyrus and his successors did the complete opposite. There are no scenes of war and conquest at Persepolis or Pasargad or at Susa. But these themes were very common in Assyrian art, and you see that here. The image to the right shows Assyrian soldiers wearing pointed iron helmets, firing arrows at a city. They're besieging it. And you'll notice, however, in the background, you see over there, these are members of the civilian population that the Assyrians have taken, stripped naked, and impaled on stakes. The image to the left shows the Assyrians engaging in a practice that some historians have lightheartedly referred to as godnapping. Now, the ancient Near Easterners, they put great stock in the divine images of their gods. They believed that these idols contained supernatural powers and that the welfare of the community was bound up with that of the statue. So what the Assyrians would do was, when they wanted to take over a country, the first thing they would do is strip the temples of the idols and they would hold them hostage. And that's what you see here. Assyrian soldiers have sacked the city and now they're marching out and they have taken this idol hostage. Now the Assyrians would not just remove uh, statues from the cities they conquered, they would actually remove people. They engage in a practice called population deportation and what that means is when the Assyrians would take over a region, they would transplant a major portion of the local population to a different part of their empire and then replace that portion with people from other regions that they controlled. And there were many reasons why they did this, but one of the most important was that they sought to break the national identity of the different peoples they ruled. They figured that by mixing everyone together, people would forget their ethnic affiliations, and therefore the Assyrians would not have to face resistance of a national character. And again, as we'll see under Cyrus and his successors, what the Persian kings actually did was that they cultivated the national identity of the different nations over which they ruled. This next slide is one of my favorites, and it really capitulates in a humorous manner some of the harshness of the Assyrian rule. You see here, this is an image, it's a bas-relief from Nainaval. This is the Assyrian capital, and it shows the king Ashurbanipal I. He's here reclining on a couch, and he's sipping some wine. Now, the faces have been mutilated, and they're mutilated on purpose by the people who conquered Nainaval. But you see, in front of him, there's a royal lady, and it's very obvious that they're on a romantic date. They're in a setting, there's a garden, you see there's a bow, there are nightingales flying around on, on the birds, there are servants bringing refreshments. Off to the side, I had to cut this off the slide, but you'd see there'd be musicians. Now, who can tell, and you're going to have to look hard, but who can tell what's a little bit off with this scene? Look toward the trees. There's what? Is it broken? No, no, it's definitely broken, but there's... <laughs> Sorry? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I have to do a better job with these slides then. If you look over here, that's a head. And so... Where is it? Sorry. Right there. Yeah. 
That is the pickled head of the king of Elam. It was the enemy of the Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. He defeated him in battle, had the head pickled to preserve it, and then he hung it as a trophy in his garden. And according, now what's really interesting is according to some art historians, this is not Ashurbanipal's wife, but it's the wife of the dead Elamite king. So you see the Assyrian king did something very low. He not only killed his enemy, but then he took his enemy's wife out for dinner and drinks. And that's <laughs> not a nice move by any measure. <laughs> and at, at any rate, it was the unpopular measures and tactics implemented by the Assyrians that led to their downfall. The Assyrians were resented by the people whom they ruled. And it is said that no sooner would the Assyrians conquer a province than that the people in that province would rise up in revolt. And so the Assyrian Empire was perpetually caught up in a state of war. During the 120 years that marked the heyday of Assyrian power from the reign of Tiglath-Pilesar III in the mid-8th century BC to the downfall of the empire in 612, the Assyrians fought during this 120-year period 108 wars of reprisal and repression against rebellious nations. The empire exhausted itself militarily, and in 612 BC, it was overthrown by a coalition of Medes and Babylonians. Now, the fall of the Assyrian Empire really set the stage for the rise of Cyrus. The Near East was now divided between four great kingdoms. These were the Median Empire over here in yellow, which ruled over much of the Iranian plateau and parts of eastern Anatolia. It probably didn't extend this far Oh, and we lost the pointer. It probably didn't extend this far to the east as shown here. There was the Babylonian Empire, which is shown in green. It ruled over southern Mesopotamia and parts of the Levant, Syria, what's now Jordan, Israel. There was the kingdom of Lydia, which is in Western Asia Minor, shown in blue. And of course, Egypt was a land of the pharaohs. And within 80 years of Assyria's fall, each of these great states would in turn be conquered by the Persians. The most important of the successor states to the Assyrian Empire for our purposes is the Median Empire. The Medes ruled over the Persians and other Iranian peoples. We unfortunately do not know much about this state, and that's because the Medes have not left any archives that have survived to the present. In fact, some historians now doubt whether there was really such a thing as a Median Empire. They like to think of it more as a tribal confederation. Consistent with this view, we know that the Medes tried to control their outlying territories by establishing diplomatic uh, alliances, dynastic alliances, I should say, between their own royal house and those of the peoples they ruled. The most famous diplomatic marriage from the Median period is the one whereby Mandana, is there anyone named Mandana in the audience? No? no it's a common Iranian name these days. Mandana was the Median princess. She was the daughter of Astyagis. This is a name to remember. Astyagis was the last king of the Medes, and he gave his daughter Mandana in marriage to Cambyses I, who was the Achaemenid king of Persia. And the offspring of this marriage was, of course, Cyrus II, or Cyrus the Great, the subject of our talk. Now, we unfortunately know very little about Cyrus's early years and upbringing, and that's because the stories that have survived are largely shrouded in myth. The most famous legend is the one recounted by Herodotus, according to which Cyrus 
when he was, before he was born, was the subject of dreams that haunted his grandfather, Astyages. So when Cyrus was born, Astyages gave orders to have the baby abandoned in the wilderness. This was done, but the child did not die of exposure, nor was it eaten by predators. But a wild dog came and rescued him, and gave him milk, and then defended him from other animals. And eventually, Cyrus was discovered by a cowherd, who brought the baby into his own home. And so Cyrus, for 10 years, was raised as a commoner, before, through a remarkable set of coincidences, his true identity was revealed, and he was restored to his biological parents. This story is pure folklore, and it has very close parallels in Indian and Roman mythology. Particularly opposite is the Roman legend of Romulus. Romulus was the eponymous founder of the city of Rome, and he was the, fa he was the father of the Roman nation, much as Cyrus was the father of the Persian nation, and he too was said to have been abandoned in the wilderness and to have been raised by a wild dog. Now these stories all go back to a common Indo-European heritage and it is my belief that the so-called Cyrus legends or Cyrus sagas were devised as propaganda during the reigns of Cyrus and his successors to cast the founder of the Persian Empire in the same light as some of the great heroes of the Iranian epics. And I think what you see here provides indirect support for that. This is an amulet from the Parthian or Sasanian period, and it shows on the one side the hero Thraytona. This is Feridun in the Shahnameh, and he is attacking here a demon that has the ears and the other appendages of a donkey. And on the reverse, what you see is the motif of a suckling canine. Now, Herodotus would have us believe that Cyrus and Astyages, his father, his maternal grandfather rather, the king of the Medes, had a falling out because Cyrus grew up to resent the fact that Astyages had tried to kill him when he was a child. This is again folklore. I subscribe to the theory of I.M. Diakonoff and other scholars that Cyrus was for a while the heir to the thrones of both Persia, the kingdom where his father was the ancestral ruler, as well as Media but that his grandfather, the Median king, decided to cut him out of the succession because he did not want a half-Persian prince to take over his realm. Whatever the case, in 559 BC, Cyrus became the hereditary king of Persia. He was to rule initially as a Median vassal, but he immediately began building up his base of power in southern Iran. Cyrus unified the Persian tribes, and six years later, in 553 BC, he declared rebellion against his grandfather. The war between the Medes and the Persians lasted for three years and resulted in a total Persian victory. What is interesting, however, is that during the, throughout the war, a large portion of the Median nobility supported Cyrus. We know this not just from the writings of the Greeks, but also from the Babylonian sources. And it was, in fact, the mutiny within the Median army that resulted in Astyages, the great king of the Medes, being handed over to Cyrus in chains by his own nobles. Now, Cyrus spared his grandfather. He didn't treat him as an Assyrian king would by putting him to death. According to Herodotus, the famous Greek historian, he treated his grandfather Astyages very well and kept him at his court. Other Greek sources tell us that he gave Astyages an estate in northeastern Iran. Cyrus also learned at this stage, I think, a very important lesson, and that was that he had to rule on terms. The Median nobles had supported him, but in return, they expected that Cyrus would uphold their interests when he became victorious. And so Cyrus learned very early on the value of establishing good relations with local elites in the lands that he conquered. 
It was the reconfigured alliance now, relationship between the Medes and the Persians. Previously, the Medes had been on top, but now it was the Persians that really laid the groundwork for Iranian national identity and the idea of Iran as a nation state. And you see a vestige of this in the reliefs at Persepolis. I don't know how many of you have been there, but you may have seen many uh, carvings similar to this. You see here the Persian nobles, they're wearing the fluted crowns and they have robes. The Medes wear round hats and uh, tight-fitting tunics with overcoats. And here, they're walking in procession, holding hands in a show of unity among the two most important Iranian people. Whatever the case, the, uh, Cyrus's victory over Asiagus upset the balance of power in the Near East. King Croesus of Lydia in Western Asia Minor had been a brother-in-law to Astyagus, the Median king, and he was upset to see his kinsmen overthrown. Moreover, Croesus had territorial ambitions in eastern Anatolia. This was a region that the Medes had previously ruled and to which Cyrus now laid claim. In 545 BC, Croesus led an army into eastern Anatolia, into the region of Cappadocia, and he captured and destroyed the powerful city of Teria, which is located near present-day Ankara. Cyrus rushed out to meet Croesus in battle. He defeated him, and then he chased them all the way to the Lydian capital of Sardis. Sardis was supposed to be impregnable, but Cyrus took it after a brief siege of 14 days. Now, what happened to Croesus is a bit of a mystery. Scholars debate his fate, but it would appear, based on this image you see here, this is an early 5th century BC vase painting by the Greek artist Myson, that Croesus attempted to kill himself by burning himself alive atop a pyre. He apparently thought that it would be better to kill himself in this manner than to fall captive to the enemy. But the Greek historians are unanimous in that Cyrus spared Croesus' life, and so it appeared that he quenched the flames and that he pulled Croesus off the pyre, and that he treated him with the same respect and dignity that he had earlier treated his grandfather. According to Herodotus, Cyrus made Croesus a trusted advisor, and according to the historian Catasius, he gave him an estate and a private army of his own in Iran. Now, Cyrus would not be as forgiving of the Asiatic Greeks. At that time, the Greeks had colonized the western coast of Asia Minor. The, these Greek colonies had previously recognized the overlordship of Croesus, the Lydian king. And during the early stages of his war against Croesus, Cyrus had approached the Greeks. He had sent ambassadors, and he had asked them to rise up in rebellion against his enemy in alliance with the Persians. The Greeks rejected this proposal, quite frankly, because they didn't think that Cyrus would win the war. So Cyrus was very angry when, after his victory, the Greeks sent ambassadors seeking from him the same favorable terms of submission that they had earlier received from Croesus. It is said that Cyrus rejected the proposal by recounting the following legend. He said that there was once a fisherman who wanted to see the fish dance. And so day after day, he would go and sit on the beach and he'd play a flute for them. When he saw that the fish weren't jumping out of the water, he at length lost patience, threw a net into the water, and then dragged the fish onto the beach. And then when he saw the fish flopping around, he said, look, you wouldn't dance for me when I played my tune, but you're dancing for me now. And the moral of the story was that Cyrus would conquer the Greeks by force. This was perfectly in line with his sense of chivalry. He had grown up in a feudal society, and he knew, like any good Persian, how to hold a grudge. <laughs> so between 545 and 540 BC, Cyrus unleashed his generals against the Greek colonies of Asia, and these were all conquered without exception. 
While Cyrus's generals were thus engaged in the west, Cyrus himself was busy in the east and to the north of Iran. He marched further in these directions than any Median or Assyrian king before him. We do not know the exact route that his army took or the number of campaigns that was necessary to conquer this region, but when it was all said and done, Persian rule now extended to the frontiers of India and into the heart of West Central Asia. These conquests doubled the territorial extent and the population of the Persian Empire, but they did not lead to a commensurate doubling of its wealth. So we might want to ask why Cyrus spent such time and such energy campaigning in the East. One reason was clearly geopolitical. The northeastern frontier of the Iranian plateau has always been exposed to large-scale nomadic invasions from Central Asia, and about 100 years before Cyrus came to power, steppe nomads, known as Saka Scythians, and in the Iranian legendary tradition, Turanians, had burst across this frontier, and they had ransacked and devastated agricultural settlements all across Iran, Asia Minor, and Mesopotamia. Cyrus was very much dedicated to preventing this catastrophe from recurring, and so what he did was he built a series of seven frontier fortresses to serve as a bulwark against these nomadic uh, armies from the steppe, and in this sense he really did what the first emperor of China did by putting up the Great Wall. But there's another reason too that I think, there's another objective that really lured Cyrus to the east, and that is the ideal known from the Zoroastrian scriptures or the Avesta that existed of this time of a king that would unite all the different Iranian nations. And the Avesta, this king is Kavihosrava, Kehosro in the Shahnameh, who is hailed as the gallant hero who counted all the Iranian lands into a single nation. The legendary accounts, the quasi-legendary accounts of Cyrus's birth and upbringing bear a very strong resemblance to the legend of Kavihosrava. And I wouldn't be surprised if Cyrus was inspired to imitate this legendary hero from the Iranian epics, much as, say, Alexander was inspired to imitate the deeds of Achilles during his own eastern conquests. Whatever the case, in 539 BC, during the 20th year of his reign, Cyrus set his sights on Babylon. Babylon was at that time the wealthiest and the largest and the most pop heavily uh, populated city in the Near East. It had a lengthy history that already went back several thousands of years. It was a true center of civilization. It was particularly famous because of the religious lore, but it was also a city in strife. The last king of the Babylonian Empire was named Nabonidus. He was not a true Babylonian. He was rather an Aramean from northwestern Mesopotamia. As such, he was planning an unpopular reform of the Babylonian religion, the objective of which was to replace Marduk, the traditional head of the pantheon, shown here, with his own favorite deity, which was the god of the moon, named Sin. This antagonized a large portion of the Babylonian population, including the priests of Marduk, who controlled vast uh, temples, they had amassed much wealth, and they had much real estate, they, they owned a lot of land. And among the temples they owned was this, this is Etamananki, it is the Tower of Babel of biblical fame, and this is an archaeologist's reconstruction, and it gives you a sense as to the grandeur, it was probably the largest building in antiquity. The Marduk priests established contacts with Cyrus, 
well in advance of his invasion, and they disseminated pro-Persian propaganda throughout Babylon, Bab the Babylonian Empire, portraying Cyrus as an upholder and as a champion of traditional Babylonian values. The result was that when Cyrus invaded in 539, he met with only half-hearted resistance. There was only one battle of which we know, that was at Opis along the banks of the Tigris River, after which the defenses of the Babylonian Empire completely collapsed. All the great cities of Babylon opened their gates to Cyrus one at a time, and Cyrus himself entered Babylon, again the most heavily fortified city in the Near East without a battle, in October of 539. When Cyrus entered Babylon, he did so in the manner of a native Babylonian king. He adopted the titulary of Mesopotamian rulers, calling himself the king of Sumer and Akkad. He paid lip service to Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon and the other deities that were closely related to him. And he established very good contacts and relations with the priests of Marduk and the other temples. We know this from multiple sources, including the Cyrus Cylinder. This is perhaps the most iconic artifact left from Cyrus's reign. It's on permanent display at the British Museum and was recently in the United States last year. The Cyrus Cylinder is not, contrary to what many people have, how many people have characterized it, it's not a charter of human rights, but it's still a very important document because it shows a movement away from the more brutish and domineering forms of conquest and rule espoused by the empires that preceded Cyrus. Whereas, say, an Assyrian king in a similar type inscription might talk about how he inflicted punishment upon the native population, how he maybe took his enemies and chopped them into pieces and fed them to animals, Cyrus talks about how he entered Babylon without a battle, how he had his soldiers march the streets with their weapons packed away, and how he did not allow anyone in his innumerable army to terrorize the people of Sumer and Akkad. The Cyrus Cylinder is also very important because it talks about a very important restoration project that Cyrus undertook shortly after taking over Babylon. The Babylonian kings, like the Assyrians before them, practiced population deportation and godnapping to enforce their rule. And within months of occupying Babylon, Cyrus issued an edict authorizing the return of divine icons and deported peoples to their homes, to the lands to the east and to the north of the city of Babylon. The Cyrus Cylinder does not talk about the similar treatment of lands to the west, but we know that the same policy was applied there from other sources, including the Hebrew Bible. In 587 BC, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II had sacked Jerusalem. He had killed its king, and he moved as many as 20,000 Jews into Babylonian captivity. He had also devastated the temple of Yahweh that King Solomon had built around 950 BC, and he had stolen all the utensils. Cyrus, during the buildup of his campaign against Babylon, established contacts with the leaders of the Jewish community living in Babylonian captivity. The anonymous prophet known as Second Isaiah hails Cyrus in his scriptures as the Lord's anointed or the Messiah. This was the title at that time given to the legitimate king of Israel and it was quite remarkable. Cyrus is in fact the first person so called in the Old Testament and he is of course a Gentile. Second Isaiah told his followers that Cyrus, in the event of a victory, would restore them to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple, and this is exactly what Cyrus did. The books of Second Chronicles and the book of Ezra 
they have memorialized an edict given by Cyrus, issued in the name of Yahweh, whom Cyrus hails as the God of heaven, authorizing the return of the Jews to their homeland and the expenditure of royal funds to rebuild the temple. And it's said that as many as 40,000 Jews made the return trek from Mesopotamia back to Jerusalem. Having conquered Babylon and having restored the exiles, repatriated the exiles to their homeland, Cyrus spent the last decade of his reign devising a system of administrative rule and an ideology of kingship that would hold his empire together. The central focus of the Achaemenid imperial ideology from the time of Cyrus on was the exaltation of the king. The Persian king ruled as a divine right monarch. He received his mandate to rule directly from heaven, and there was all sorts of pomp and circumstance that followed his person. You see, this is the appearance of a Persian king. It's from a famous relief that's now in the Iran Bastan Museum in Tehran, but it comes from Persepolis, and it shows Xerxes here seated on what would have been a golden throne. He's holding a golden scepter and is in one hand. His other hand holds a lotus flower. This was a symbol of immortality. And he has a golden crown and, of course, the telltale sign of a Near Eastern king, which is the long, flowing, meticulously curled beard. And the only other person in the empire who could dress like this, who could have this appearance, was, of course, the crown prince, who is shown here standing behind the king. But notice how they exalt the monarch in that the king, while seated, is the same size as the crown prince while standing. And now what's interesting, and those of you who are interested in the Bible and in theological studies, you may find this relevant, is that this image is said to have inspired the description given in the book of Daniel about the coming of the Messiah, or the Son of Man, at the end of time to bring justice to the earth. Now the Persian king, again, as I said, was a divine right monarch. He received his mandate to rule directly from the gods, and he was an intermediary between gods and men. And this aspect of the royal ideology is exemplified in this image you see here. This is from the carving on the tomb of one of Cyrus's successors at Naqshirostan, near Persepolis. It shows the king here standing on a three-tiered platform, praying before a fire altar in the traditional Zoroastrian manner. Now, there's much debate about the religion of ancient Iran, and in fact, Professor Richard Fry, who recently died, said that anyone who tries to characterize ancient Iranian religion inevitably goes insane himself. <laughs> Again, I've never been accused of sanity, and it is my belief that all the Achaemenid rulers, from Cyrus the Great to Darius III, practiced a form of Zoroastrianism, although there is interesting evidence to suggest that Cyrus was also personally devoted to the god Mithra, and that may have been because of his Median ancestry. In any event, the king is here, he's praying before the fire altar, and this is most likely the image of Ahura Mazda. He is shown as a royal person emerging from a winged solar disk. And this is a platform, this is called in old Persian the Gothu, or the throne platform, and it is being supported by members, representatives of all the different nations under Persian rule. And if you look closely, you'll see that there's a variation in costume. The artists tried to capture the different nuances in dress that the different subject nations had. And you'll see that the Persians here are shown on an equal footing with the different subject nations. So what's the basic message behind the theme is that the king prays to the god on behalf of all the different subject nations in the empire and that they in turn uphold the throne platform and thereby the monarchy. 
Now, the Persian Empire, in terms of its administration, was very well run, and in this sense, it was the true successor to the Assyrian state, which was, despite its brutality, it was very efficient. Cyrus divided his empire into provincial governorships called satrapies, each of which was under the rule of a provincial governor or satrap. The satrap's fundamental duty was to manage relations between the crown, the central authority, and the local elites in the subject lands. Now, the, the satraps had a mandate, and the Persians allowed all the different subject nations to rule according to their own customs, and they respected their religious beliefs. And so the Persian period, as I said, in contrast to the Assyrian period, was one in which the cultural identity of the different peoples of the Near East was nurtured. The greatest example of this occurs in the case of the Jews, or the best known example, I should say. And in 450 BC, the Persian king Artaxerxes I sent the priest scholar Ezra to Jerusalem with a mandate, and that was to educate the people and to compile the law of Moses. And the result of this mission was the canonization of the first five books of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. This would be the Torah or the Pentateuch. Now the Persians, as opposed to the Greeks who came after them and to an extent the Assyrians who came before them, did not seek to impose their own cultural values upon the different peoples that they ruled. Nevertheless, it is an important lesson of the Achaemenid period that in an integrated global society, attractive ideologies and messages will nevertheless be transmitted. At that time, the most important message to emanate from the Iranian plateau was that of a divine creation. In the Zoroastrian religion, the belief was that before the creation, the forces of good and evil, that would be truth and lie, were totally separated. And that the good god, Ahura Mazda, in order to vanquish his enemy, the devil, had to create the universe to lure the forces of evil from that unassailable dark place into an arena where they could be destroyed once and for all. And that this final victory of good over evil would occur at the end of time, and that it would be brought about by a human savior who was born to a virgin mother. Now, this must sound familiar to some people. Now, what is interesting is because of this emphasis placed on the importance of a divine creation, the creation myths of the different people who were subject to Persian rule all changed following Cyrus's conquest. Martin Litchfield West has studied this phenomenon with respect to Greek religion and philosophy in the 6th century BC. Morton Smith, a very eminent Columbia scholar of biblical studies, has studied it with respect to the Hebrew Bible. I mentioned earlier the prophet second Isaiah, who is Cyrus's spokesperson among the Jewish community living in Babylonian captivity. Second Isaiah, this is not really well known, but it's very important. He is the first Hebrew prophet, the first prophet in the Old Testament, to speak of Yahweh in unequivocally monotheistic terms as the sole creator of the entire cosmos. And what's interesting is that Second Isaiah, in each instance, intertwines his monotheistic praise of Yahweh with his praise of Cyrus. And you'll see that he begins by recounting Yahweh's creative ability. He talks about in the first passage, this is what God the Lord says, speaking of Yahweh. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. And then he concludes this with praise of Cyrus. This is very similar to the standard opening to all the old Persian inscriptions of the Achaemenid kings, which praise Ahura Mazda as the great god who created this earth, 
who created that sky, who created man, and who created happiness or prosperity for man. And it's the belief of Wharton Smith, and I believe there's a lot of validity to this, that second Isaiah received the inspiration for his novel conception of God from Iranian propaganda that he had heard presenting the Achaemenid king as a Lord's anointed of the Zoroastrian god, Ahura Mazda. Now, every great king deserves a great palace, and in 545 BC, after having conquered Lydia, Cyrus began the construction of a palace complex in the Persian homeland at Pasargada. Pasargada was named after his ancestral tribe. The Achaemenid family was the leading clan of the Pasargada, and the location of the palace complex was the site of Cyrus's final victory over the Medes. This is an archeologist's reconstruction of one of the palaces at Pasargada, and this is all that is left of it today. Now, Pasargada is very important from the standpoint that before the Persians began constructing it, they didn't have a native tradition of monumental art or architecture. So what they did was they drew upon the expertise of their more talented subjects. Nevertheless, what happened was they drew all these different artistic traditions together, and out of them they devised a distinctly Iranian art form. And in a way, this represents one of the geniuses and recurring themes in Iran's lengthy history, because Iran has had to redefine itself on uh, numerous occasions in response to foreign influence. This is perhaps most poignantly demonstrated at Pasargada in the case of this. This is a line drawing of one of the famous reliefs there, and it is a depiction of the so-called four-winged guardian. This is most likely a portrayal of Cyrus's spiritual double or guardian angels. The Zoroastrians believe that each individual had a guardian angel or again a spiritual double who lived in the abstract ethereal realm. And it is interesting to see that Cyrus depicted his own spiritual double wearing an Elamite robe with an elaborate Egyptian or Phoenician headdress and with the wings of an Assyrian or a Babylonian god. And this has been interpreted as a reflection of Cyrus's own all-inclusive ecumenical worldly outlook as well as perhaps a tip of the hat to the old and more hallowed civilizations of the Near East. Now, my book is more than just a biography of Cyrus. As I said earlier on, it's a, it describes age-old Persian cultural institutions, and anyone who reads it, who is either Iranian themselves or has Iranian friends or has traveled to the country, will see that in many ways not much has changed over the course of 25 centuries. Even, even back then, the Iranians were very much enamored with banqueting and with partying and with drinking. They were in fact very fond of wine and the <laughs> archaeologists have found numerous examples of ornate silverware and tableware from the courts of the Achaemenid kings and their governors and their nobles scattered all across the ancient Persian Empire as well as beyond its former boundaries. And in fact Herodotus tells us of a very interesting custom. He tells us that the Iranians, again, they were so fond of drinking and they would drink so frequently that they had a custom whereby they would reconsider any major decision they made when they were drunk, later when they were sober, but they would also reconsider any major decision they made when they were sober, later when they were drunk. And so you can see this cycle just going on and on. 
Now the Iranians were also avid gardeners. This image to the left shows one of the irrigation channels from Cyrus's own garden at Pasar Gada. Now this is not surprising. Iran, anyone who's been there, you'll know that it's a very arid country. And when I went there for the first time with my father a few years ago, I was actually taken by the fact that especially in Fars, the Persian homeland, anywhere that there was a little bit of green, it didn't matter if it was a highway divider or anything, there was a family there picnicking. <laughs> Now, the Iranians had a very special form of garden, and that was called a paradise. In fact, the word paradise is a loan word from ancient Persian. Paradeza or paradeda, depending on the dialect, meant a walled enclosure. And paradise gardens were remarkable on various counts. First of all, they served, some of them were very vast, so we know that an entire army could camp out there if it wanted to, and they were used as hunting parks. And this was important because the ancient Iranians believed that hunting was the best means of military exercise. It was also a way to get rid of foul animals. But they also, paradises served as microcosms of the great heavenly gardens that the Iranians believed awaited the souls of the pious and the afterlife. In fact, the Iranians were always very much enamored and fascinated with this concept of a life beyond this life. The notion of an afterlife most likely entered the Abrahamic religions from Iran, and that's why some of the paradise gardens to this day have heavenly names, such as the Bagh Eram in Shiraz and the Hasht Behesht, their eighth heaven in Esfahan. And we know that the most famous paradise in ancient Persia, we know this from the Persepolis fortification tablets, was called the Garden of Vispeshiati, which means all happiness. And that was also another name for heaven at that time. Now there's another convention of Iranian gardening, and that is the Chahar Bagh, or the fourfold garden. And the earliest known example of this is the one that Cyrus had devised for himself at Pasar Gad, and you see here, and this would later be exported, this form of gardening, this convention would go as far as Bangladesh and Southeast Asia to the east, but would also go all the way to Spain in the west. Now Cyrus, despite his love of gardens and of spending relaxing, you know, relaxing time there, he was a soldier and he was not destined to die peacefully. He had his eye on future conquests in 530 BC. He seems to have set his sights on adding Egypt, the last remaining of the four great kingdoms of the Near East, to his empire, but he was unable to carry out that campaign because of disturbances in the Northeast. The steppe nomads were a perpetual concern there, and in 530, Cyrus marched out to meet them in battle. There are conflicting accounts, and we don't know whether the Persians won or lost, but we know that Cyrus suffered a mortal wound from which he perished after a few days. Contrary to the story told by Herodotus, the Persians recovered his body and they brought it back to this tomb that you see here at his capital of Pasargada and laid it to rest there. Alexander the Great passed through Pasargada two centuries after Cyrus's death and he entered the tomb and he saw Cyrus's body there encased in wax with a few humble objects. Now the Greek historians, Alexander's historians, assure us that there was an inscription there. Archaeologists have not found any trace of a text, but it perhaps makes for good drama to end this talk by recounting the most flowery rendition of this inscription that was supposedly there. And it is the one given by Plutarch. And it goes as follows. O man, whosoever you are, and from wheresoever you come, for I know that you will arrive to pay homage, understand that I am Cyrus, who bestowed empire upon the Persians. Grudge me not, therefore, this modest monument that covers my body. 
Thank you very much, and now questions and answers. No questions? You got it all? Oh, sorry, over there. Yeah, I didn't quite understand you say about the virgin uh, mother. Is that, you're talking about Bible or before the Bible? No, in, in the Zoroastrian scriptures, the Zoroastrians believed that the end of time, the victory of good over evil, would occur at the end of time. And that the Lord of time would be a person, a savior. And that this savior would be born to a virgin mother and the story goes as follows, that there was a lake, and this is most likely the Hamun Lake in eastern Iran. This was a sacred place for the Zoroastrians. And they believed, now I don't know what he was doing in the water, but somehow Zoroaster's seed was preserved in this lake. And that a virgin would wade into it, and then she would be impregnated by it. And that she would give birth to this savior who would come at the end of time and again vanquish the forces of evil and of the lie. And that this, this story, this story, this concept, I would not be surprised if it went from Iran and it entered the Judeo-Christian biblical tradition. I think there's a large debt that Christianity has to Zoroastrianism, and I think this is one aspect of it. Yes? So you mentioned that uh, not much uh, was recorded by Iranians about Cyrus, and much, much that we have is from the Greeks right. and other sources. So I'm curious about your book. Um, what, what would the reading of your book convey differently or in, in terms of form or content that would distinguish it from uh, prior works that make mention of Cyrus uh, in the context of other events? Uh, so, you, you clearly mentioned that in your book you, you, that you don't just focus on Cyrus, you, you focus on the history of Iran. And Cyrus obviously occupies an important part of that. But by writing your book, what objective were you trying to achieve that was not well, there's been a lot written about Cyrus in the form of articles, you know, journal articles that are very difficult to access for the layperson. It hasn't really been compiled and drawn together in a way that brings Cyrus to life, that really presents him as a three-dimensional person. And this is a very difficult task. But just so you know, there's more than just the Greek works that have gone into this book. Uh, the Greeks, Herodotus and Cetaceus and Xenophon, to an extent, are our main narrative sources. But one has to be very careful in relying upon them. And that's because they got their information from different sources within Iran. Uh, within, uh, and not Iran itself necessarily, but the f territories of the Persian Empire. And there was a lot of legend that was mixed in there. What you have to do to come up with the story of Cyrus is you have to extrapolate the Greek sources with the Babylonian cuneiform documents, with the old Persian inscriptions of Cyrus's successors. There's the Avesta, there's the Armenian historians, and there's, of course, the legends, the epics, the information in the Shahnameh Ferdosi. And this hasn't been pulled together in this way regarding Cyrus. You know, I'll give you an example of what I mean. There is a legendary account of Cyrus that talks about how he captures his grandfather after the victory of the Persians over the Medes. And 
According to this story, his grandfather goes in hiding in the attic of his palace, and Cyrus takes his grandfather's kinsmen, brings them out, and he threatens to torture them unless the grandfather comes out. And then the grandfather, out of sympathy for his relatives, surrenders himself. Now, there's a very eminent historian of classical studies who has interpreted this and reached the conclusion that the Persians never intended, that you know, Cyrus wasn't a kind guy. He wasn't particularly benevolent. He was, in fact, very cruel. Now, had she been, had any familiarity whatsoever with the Iranian epic tradition, she would know that this motif came from the legend of Kavi Hosrava, or Khosrow, whom I mentioned. And in the original legend, what happens is Khosrow defeats his adversary, this is Afrasiyab. And then he, in order to lure, Afrasiyab then goes into hiding in his underground palace. And then in order to lure him out, what Khosrow does is he skins Afrasiyab's brother alive and kills him in this manner. Then when the king sees that, he comes and surrenders himself. Well, you see, in the story told about Cyrus, that motif from the earlier legend is softened. And so the conclusion I would reach from that is that Cyrus did not want, he wanted to be remembered as a more humanitarian ruler. He wanted to bring the same motif from the story into his own story, into the own propagandistic account of his victory. But he didn't want to portray himself as someone who would senselessly kill an innocent person. So this sort of stuff, this is just one example. But I'm sorry, but in your book, do you actually draw attention to these contrasts, or do you just give the narration of the... No, 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 no. So, 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 so I'm very happy you asked that. My book, you will notice, I don't know if you've picked up a copy or not, it's not the smallest book in the world. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, you, you know, uh, myself and my publisher, we spent a great deal of time organizing it the way that we did. The first 400 pages is the narrative account. And I think 400 pages is it's a good amount, but it's not overly burdensome for a man of Cyrus's stature. The appendices and the notes, this is where we get into a lot of this minutia. So for example, you want to learn about how they incorporated the, uh, how these legends were incorporated into the historical accounts and narratives of Cyrus that we know from the Greeks, there's an appendix on that. But the main body is told in a way that would be digestible and I hope a good read. And your target audience? Target audience? It would be learned lay people and interested scholars. Yes? Uh, two two uh, small, short questions. Uh, what's your uh, support for Nabonidus being uh, Aramean? Aramean? Yes. And uh, maybe the second one is um, uh, in regard to Isaiah, is it, is it true that Isaiah was a Greek, uh, had a Greek uh, original? Uh, I'll answer the second one more quickly. No, I have never, I've never heard that. Second Isaiah, this isn't, you know, the book of Daniel, for example, there are portions of it that have been written in Greek, and it may well have been postulated that there was a Greek original that was then retranslated into parts into perhaps Hebrew or Aramaic. But the book of Isaiah was not like that. It was written in Hebrew. Uh, as to Nabonidus, well, we know this from several sources. Uh, there's the dynastic prophecy. There's the verse account. We know it from Nabonidus' own, uh, from his own inscriptions. 
he makes it very clear that he's not a Babylonian, that he's not of royal seed. In fact, in his inscriptions, he says, I'm the son of a nobody. And his hometown was Haran, which is in northwestern Mesopotamia. And so most scholars believe that he was an Aramean. And in fact, in the verse account, another proof of it is that when he wanted to exalt the cult of the god Sin, he referred to him not by his Babylonian name, Sin, but as El Teri, which was the name that the Arameans gave to the moon god. Now, I've learned about uh, a little bit uh, the, the mystery behind Aramaic. Right. Is there, a, is there an origin for the Aramaic? Well, the Aramaeans migrated most likely from the Arabian Peninsula. I, I'm, I'm, again, very happy that you're asking these questions because it brings about a very interesting part of that period that most people overlook. The Aramaeans migrated from the Arabian Peninsula. And one of the interesting things about Nabonidus, who was the ruler of the Babylonian Empire, was that for 10 years he never stepped foot in Babylon. He took up residence in Tema, which was the oasis city in northwestern Arabia. And what he was doing there was that he was propagating again the cult of this moon god Sin. And he went all the way down from there to Mecca and Medina. And in fact, it's very interesting because the foundations of Islam in a way go back to this period. Islam the Prophet Muhammad learned a lot about his religion from the Arabian Jews. The Arabian Jews were introduced to the Arabian Peninsula because they were soldiers in Nabonidus' army, which went, like, as I said, all the way down to Medina. And of course, Nabonidus made the cult of the moon god endemic in the Arabian Peninsula. And it's probably on account of that that the symbol of Islam is, to this day, the crescent moon. Yes? Uh, thank you for the presentation. Now, what do you have the stylus on the screen here? Um, that room uh, is not a reflective of Achaemenid architecture. Correct. You know? um, here is a question. It's more resembles Greek architecture. So there are some um, ideas that actually that is not a stone. And that may have been built during Alexander's conquest. That I've never heard. And the reason for that is that there's another tomb very similar to this in Bozpar, also in Fars. And that has been tentatively identified as the tomb of Cyrus the Younger, perhaps. But you're right, there is some controversy, according to some people, as the building called the Zendane Soleiman, which is the tall tower, only the facade of which exists. That may have been the tomb. But we have very good reason to believe that this is it. Uh, the account given in the Greek historians talks about a tiered structure with seven or ten tiers. And also, the tomb of Cyrus appears in the center of a pre-Buddhist Tibetan map, at the center of the world. And it is called there the house of the swastika. The swastika at that time meant sun. It didn't have any, you know, <laughs> any sinister connotations. And the only carving on the facade of this tomb is a symbol of the god Mithra. And Mithra was many things, but he was also supposed to be the god that leads the soul of the deceased to the bridge of judgment and then to paradise. So, yes? Very yes. uh, uh, good point, thank you. Uh, but I'm sure you visited uh, Tafter Rostam. And uh, you see that uh, majority of the accommodated kings are buried inside the mountains. In right. The cave. So why should have Cyrus been? Well, it could have been, it could have been a slight difference in religious beliefs. 
As I said, there's evidence to suggest that Cyrus, as opposed to Darius and Xerxes, was more personally devoted to the god Mithra, and there was a belief in Mithraism that the soul of the deceased has to pass through seven barriers or seven tiers to attain paradise. And so you see this, this, is, this, this concept survives in Iranian poetry, in the Haft Peykar, if you would, of Nezami, in the Shahnameh, references made of it. It persists in Roman Mithraism. And if you count the number of tears here, you'll see that there are seven. So it wouldn't surprise me if this is the type of tomb that Cyrus picked for himself, because it had some sort of Mithraic connotation. And again, as I said, the only symbol on the tomb is a Mithraic symbol. But then the other reason may have been that he simply saw something that he liked. Uh, this is very similar to the tombs of the Lycians, uh, people who inhabited Asia Minor, and he campaigned there. And in fact, when he built Pasargad, he did it right after he had conquered Asia Minor. We know this because there are a lot of Greek, uh, there's a lot of Greek style to the architecture, and there are in fact some of the inscriptions made by the Greek artists themselves. But uh, this is, it, it's all, if not 100%, it's 99% certainty that this is Cyrus's tomb. Thank you. A very good explanation. Thank you. Yes. Uh, during, during the time of Cyrus, how strong was the influence of Zoroastrianism? We know that in the time of Darius and Xerxes, it was. But uh, and the question that follows is: Was Cyrus simply a supporter of Zoroastrian values, or was he himself a practitioner of Zoroastrianism? as it was at that time. Well, I think, again, we don't have any inscriptions. First of all, I should say that there is, there is debate among scholars even as to whether Darius and Xerxes were Zoroastrians. I think there's no doubt myself that they were, but it, it's, it's a point that's been debated. And again, I'll reiterate, anyone who's really gone in depth about this stuff ends up going crazy themselves because they, <laughs> they come up with some sort of a theory. But, but. The reason I ask is that when you look at how Cyrus behaved, he clearly espoused Zoroastrian values right. in many ways. R right. Without being himself identified as one. Right. Well, well let, me, let, me answer it, let me answer it like this. That we don't have any written text from Cyrus himself even praising Ahura Mazda. However, again, the Achaemenid Iranians, they were not in the habit of writing. You know, in fact, you go to Naqshirostan, for example, there are four identical tombs on the mountainside. Only one of them has an inscription identifying the person buried there, right? Oral tradition, oral history was very important. So when you want to, and this goes to the question you asked, when you want to piece together the history of this period, you have to look beyond just the narrative sources. Now, with, with Cyrus, we know this. Zoroastrians, as opposed to the pagan pre-Zoroastrian religion of Iran, they believed that fire is really sacred, should not be extinguished, these sacred fires. And to maintain a fire like that, you have to have a fire altar with a very deep bowl. And the earliest example of a deep bowl fire altar we have is the one that Cyrus constructed at Pasargad. So that's evidence number one. Evidence number two, Cyrus gave his daughter the name, his eldest daughter, the name Atosa. This isn't a random name. This is, in fact, the name of Kavivishtas, who's the, in the Zoroastrian lore, this is the first great convert and patron of the religion. And this is the name of his wife. 
So it's very akin to, say, a Christian, for example, naming his, wife, uh, naming his daughter Mary. There's a religious connotation there. And then the other thing I would say is the slide I put up about the uh, references to Yahweh the Creator in the writings of 2nd Isaiah. There are other passages in 2nd Isaiah that have been compared against the Gothas. And the Gothas are, for those of you, uh, you who may be unfamiliar, the oldest portion of the Avesta. The Avesta is the sacred text of the Zoroastrians. The Gothas are that portion that are said to have been authored by Zoroaster himself. And there's a very, there's almost a paraphrasing of those portions of the Gathas. So you put this together, you combine to that the statement of Darius at the Bisutun inscription that he restored the religion that had existed under Cyrus and Cambyses, and so I think there's no doubt that they considered themselves Zoroastrians. But again, I would say this, Zoroastrianism, much like other religions, wasn't just one thing. It was constantly evolving, there were different forms of it, and I would think that Cyrus because he was earlier in time slightly than Darius, because he was part Median, Darius was a full-blooded Persian, he was probably a little bit more pagan than Darius in his religious beliefs. Thank you. The concept and idea that you briefly alluded to as far as the, uh, the king's mandate to come from some sort of connection to divine, how far back does that go as far as uh, uh, What's the, what's the origin of that? What's the genesis? Does that have to do anything with the prevailing religious thought of the time? And a related question on that, on the relief that you, you showed, of later in the Sasanic period, we see that actually um, God as a figure had the ring passing that uh, divine uh, right. connection, or what we show when we say fire is at ease, right. uh, to the king. Right. So how far back that goes, and what's the significance? So that I, I can argue. I guess my main question is: Does it have a religious and rational context in that? Right. Well, well, I think you know. Keep this in mind that the Iranians were a very religious people and have been so as far back as we know. In fact, the word "din," which means religion, it's it's a it's it's "din" is an Iranian it's an Iranian word. It's different from "din" meaning judgment in Arabic. This meant the reflection of one's deeds. And the fact that it became synonymous and it took on the connotation of religion shows really that they judged people, are you of good religion or not? And does, that means do you follow particular rituals or whatnot? So the Iranians were always a very religious people. Now, both among tribal societies, which is what the Iranians were before they came and they settled in Iran and they came into contact with the more uh, ancient civilizations of the region, the concept that the leader of the tribe has a certain divine charisma about him is very prevalent. And this is the notion of fat, as you alluded to, fata izadi, the God-given glory or aura of leadership. This is something that had existed in a primitive form when the Iranians were tribal. Now, when they came and they settled in the Near East, they then were exposed to the culture and the civilization of, say, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And you have to keep in mind that the kings of Sumer and Akkad, of Mesopotamia, in the earliest times, they were god kings. He was both a king and he was both a god. And so there was always a strong link at that time between kingship and divinity. And this is something that became fundamental to the Persian or Iranian way of thinking about imperial ideology and that it really has continued down to practically the present day. Yes? 
Cyrus definitely is not still in the tomb. Uh, in fact, his, uh, the, the tomb was looted soon after Alexander uh, conquered the Persian Empire in about 330 BC. But the way they built it, they actually have a good idea. The quarry where they got these uh, stones from is located very close to Pasargat. It's to the north of the plain near, uh, uh, sorry, to the south, I should say, along the road that used to connect it to Persepolis, which is another very important city from back then. And uh, the quarry was there, they had their workers, they go, went and they cut out the rocks and they brought it together. Now, it's an interesting thing, if I could kind of expand upon that, that these Persian kings, again, they prided themselves in ruling over a global society. And so what that meant was that they commanded diverse multinational task forces and also brought the resources of all these different lands to their capitals. And so what you see in the inscriptions of Darius is this really exaltation of the fact that they brought all the different nations who specialized in certain sorts of work to the capital and had them do that work. So, you know, for example, the Babylonians are known to have been very good at carving rocks and bricks and building it. The Greeks were very good sculptors. Gold came, for example, from Bactria or India or other places. So. But do you know if they looted or... Did they loot it? Yes. Yes, yes. All these tombs have been looted, unfortunately. How did, the, how did they die? I forgot. How did he die? Oh, he was killed. <laughs> he was killed. He was stabbed in the thigh. Yes? Has there ever been an effort to find out what happened to the inscription above uh, Cyrus's ethereal... If there was one, yeah, uh, yeah. There's, there's actually a professor, an archaeologist. You know, the archaeologist who excavated Pasargad most recently is David Stronach, who's over at uh, UC Berkeley right now. I don't know if he has emeritus status or not, but he's written extensively about this, and he thinks that we're dealing with a little bit of the Greek imagination with that inscription, uh, because the Alexander historians have also given us inscriptions, supposed inscriptions of the tomb of Darius that don't match up to the real one. But it's quite possible, you know, the, the, what struck the Greeks about the tomb inscription was that this is a very modest man, someone who commanded vast wealth and had almost unbridled power, but he was worried about, don't grudge me this modest monument, meaning he acknowledged that sooner or later his time would come and pass, people would, you know, might, might be minded to take something of his. And the inspiration for that might be in the very short and brief inscriptions that we do know exist across his palace complex. And these say, and I can tell you what it says in Old Persian, which is, Adam Kurosh Hashoyasir Hachomanashir. I am Cyrus, the king, the Achaemenid. Very different from the more elaborate inscriptions of certain other kings who, you know, adopt multiple titles talking about rulership over the world and this and that. I believe I read somewhere that it was in the 20s when the, the, the British were They haven't discovered any inscription uh, on the tomb itself or, you know, like in the form of a flagstone located near it. To make a light of it, but uh, behind every great man, there's a great woman, right? <laughs> so I just see a reference to Well, some of these guys had multiple. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's why they were 
<laughs> um, yes, well, well, Cyrus, Cyrus was actually, he was actually relatively modest compared to some of his successors as far as that goes, although modesty being a relative thing, it wouldn't take much to be modest compared to some of his successors. Uh, you know, the later kings of the dynasty, for example, had one concubine for each night of the year. Cyrus, as far as we know, had only five children. Uh, he had two sons named Cambyses and Bardie, and three daughters, Atosa, Artistona, and also Roxana. And he had, as far as we can tell, one, maybe two, at most, maybe three wives. Uh, his favorite wife was Kassandan. This was the daughter of a very eminent Persian noble named Pharnaspes. And Herodotus tells us that when she died, he issued an edict throughout his empire saying that all his subjects should go into mourning for her. And in fact, we know that this is true because the Babylonian chronicle tells us that. Soon after Cyrus conquered Babylon, his wife died. They say the king's wife died and all the people rent their hair and rent their garments in mourning. And in fact, Cyrus abandoned Babylon soon thereafter. And it may have been because he thought there was bad luck for him there. Because she had died and also one of his lifelong comrades had died as well. Now, there's also another princess that he married, and this was Amitis. This was his aunt, actually. He liked older women. And uh, <laughs> he, had, he had, she was the mother of the princess Atosa. And she was a very important figure because she was the legitimate heiress to the Median Empire. And so whoever would marry Atosa was the heir not just to Persia, but also to Media. And that's why when Cyrus died, the first thing that his son Cambyses did was he married his sister. And then when Cambyses was overthrown by the Magi, the Magi married the sister. And then when Darius overthrew the Magi, he too married Atosa. So she was, she was passed around. <laughs> yes. Is it possible the lack of documentation which we have from the Iranian tattoo point to the, this area that, you know, Plateau was actually structuring itself to the form of the more so-called civilized people around themselves, like the Babylonians or something like that. Uh, the main reason is that I do not see that much of a like, huge, I mean, metropolis in the Iranian Plateau, except the Equator. And that's the only place, and we don't have that much of a that area, that there are some strong attachments and some excavation in that area. Right. Some uh, only fortifications, in fact. Right. Well, the Iranians, um, the Iranians, again, at this time that Cyrus, at this time that Cyrus came, they had just recently settled down. And like the Arabs after them, it took them a while before they really learned to live in cities. They had almost a claustrophobic attitude toward it, much like the Arabs did. And so that's a very interesting point. Even Persepolis, one of the great questions is this. Persepolis, Darius commenced the construction there. It wasn't really brought to completion, at least the main part of the terrace, until the middle of the reign of Xerxes. And then the question is, where were these guys operating from before that? We know that they had very extensive and elaborate tents. In fact, in Athens, the building known as the Odeon is said to have been modeled. It was one of the great structures. Is that in the Parthenon, with the two great structures built by uh, Pericles during the Golden Age of Athens. And that was modeled on the royal tent. 
And in fact, some people believe that the, even during the Achaemenids, many of the people lived in tents on the, ter- on the, the plain, the Mar Dasht, at the foot of the Persepolis Terrace. And they may have done this, in fact, at Pasargad too. Pasargad, in, in fact, according to one of the uh, Greek historians, the actual, it had a nickname, and that was Parsegarden. That means the camp of the Persians because supposedly it was modeled to be a nomadic camp and there were still nomads in the region. But you're right, I mean, the Iranians were never city dwellers, at least during the Achaemenid period, on the same scale as, for example, the Babylonians. But at the same time, there was some sort of urban living on a very modest scale around the settlements, like you mentioned. And, you know, archeologists are finding more and more stuff in the vicinity of Persepolis, each with each passing year so you know the book's open for now but it's one of the big mysteries yes between Herodotus and Xenophon do you have any kind of uh, opinion about who has written more accurately or revealing Iran uh, in a way which kind of uh, is more fact than Well, that's the challenge with both of them. I think it's pretty clear that Herodotus, at least with the portion dealing with Cyrus, he very, um, he very faithfully recounted what he had heard from Iranian sources, including most likely the family of uh, Harpagus, who was the Median general who helped raise Cyrus to power, and other sources. Uh, But at the same time, the problem is that the Iranians themselves, those sources, weren't necessarily very reliable. They told the story, they patterned the story in large parts on a pre-existing framework. These were the legends of the heroes. And they tweaked the narrative here and there to capture the historical realities. So this is the problem with pursuing, you know, putting 100% trust in Herodotus. You have to separate the fact from the fiction. And this was the fiction spawned by the Iranians themselves. With Xenophon, it becomes a little bit more complicated because Xenophon, his main work on Cyrus is the Cyropedia or the education of Cyrus. And in there, you have actual history. He had, he had access to facts that we know are ver- that have been verified that Herodotus was oblivious of. But at the same time, he introduced a different element also, and that is Greek philosophy. And it's very difficult to tell to what extent he twisted the facts to incorporate these philosophical lessons that he wanted his audience to glean. And so, at the end of it is that they're both equally reliable, but they're not entirely reliable. Uh, you mentioned uh, a lot of the history of Iran was passed on to see the in the chest to chest. Right. Uh, according to uh, the book, As Zabani Darush, from the... Hyde Mary Cook. Hyde Mary uh, there are documentations, uh, tablets that were found in Persepolis, right. which indicated what sort of money was being divided up to the workers over there. Uh, if that documentation does exist, why is it that we don't have any other documentation anywhere else within the history of, of the Yakimid? Well, uh, you know, what I would say is that documentation, first of all, it's important to know that that documentation wasn't written in an Iranian language. It was composed in Elamite, and the Elamite language was completely foreign. It was unrelated to Farsi that we speak today. Old Persian is the grandfather language of Farsi, and that's what the kings spoke themselves. Now, the empire was sophisticated enough that it had to get business done, and to do this, it needed to be able to document, it needed to have record keeping. But that nature of historiography 
you know, recounting the past, going and doing an in-depth study of historical events, as, say, Herodotus does. And he says so in the beginning of his histories. I'm doing an investigation of what happened, and this is why I'm doing it. And he essentially says so because he thinks that future generations can learn from it. This is something that's never explicitly said in any inscription. And in fact, the only inscription we have from the Achaemenid period that was commissioned by the kings themselves and that provides a narrative account is the Bisutun inscription of Darius. And he himself says this is the first inscription of its type. One other follow-up comment. Um, if I'm not mistaken, as far as the Zoroastrian religion goes, uh, burial uh, was not considered to be, uh, to be an acceptable practice. So um, the tomb of uh, Cyrus and also the tomb of the rest of uh, the Achaemenid uh, kings, could that be an indication that these folks were not actually... Uh, pagans? No, not pagans. We're not actually Zoroastrian. Well, you have to keep in mind, again, Zoroastrianism changed. And one of the big things that happened in Zoroastrianism is that Zoroastrianism was an Eastern Iranian religion. It may have developed in anywhere from, say, Afghanistan or Khorasan all the way up to Siberia. I mean, no one really knows where that religion started or when it was founded. But we know that on account of the support given to it by the Achaemenid kings, that the Western Iranian priesthood, the Magi, who were originally a pagan priesthood, somehow became the, me the main preservers of the Zoroastrian religious tradition. And so what the Magi did was they imposed some of their own rituals into Zoroastrianism. And so this ritual that you talk about, not burying the body, you know, what the Magi would do is they would expose the body and have birds or dogs eat the meat because they thought that that's rotting matter. The Magi were obsessed with purity rules. And in fact, the one part of the Avesta that we can safely ascribe to them or to a very similarly, uh, you know, a related group perhaps in Eastern Iran is the Vendi Dodge or the anti-demonic law. And it's just very elaborate recountings of, you know, if you come into contact with a dead body, how do you, you know, how do you clean yourself so that now you're pure, or this or that. Well, the Magi infused their own practices into Zoroastrianism. And this, we don't know exactly when this happened. This may have happened after Cyrus. So I think the evidence of the tombs, you know, for that to be meaningful, you have to presuppose that these Magian rituals had already become part of Zoroastrianism, and I think that's a leap of faith. I don't think you could draw any major conclusions from it. Could you announce that after that this last question, you will sign okay. some books? After this last question, I will sign some books. <laughs> Anyone? The, uh, yes. Yeah. What you mentioned about the Randy Dark actually is quite controversial because the true Zoroastrian peoples is captured in the Gathas. Right. Which are the songs of Zarathustra. Right. So the Vendida is like a code of conduct which came during Sasanitas. Uh, I, 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 I mean, that date is disputed as well. I mean, a professor of mine is... And if you go to Panji Gate, there's a, there are many burial sites, including Zoroastrian. And, how, and did they practice exposure at Panjikan? In Panjikan, the, the ancient Zoroastrian finds, right. which the Russians say, right. uh, have nothing to do with not burying the body. 
have nothing to do with not burying the body. So they the Russians were buried. They were buried. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what. Uh, that, that predates the Magi. Or maybe the Magi did not have the influence. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. But there's one thing to keep in mind: is that the Magian burial customs, this, they were also practiced by other groups that were prominent in Central Asia. Uh, in fact, the Tibetans, their sky ritual is very similar to the way that the Magi exposed the bodies of their dead. And the Native Americans here. And the Native Americans and also the Mongolians. And so it's very difficult. Again, Zoroastrianism was different things at different times. You know, for example, it was common in Eastern Iran, for example, for the Zoroastrians to allow one woman to marry two men. This wasn't practiced in the West. And in the West, in fact, they said this is one of the profanities introduced by Zahak or Ajdahak, who's the main demon. So it's very difficult, again, like I said, anyone who tries to draw firm and fast conclusions about ancient Iranian religion will go insane at the end, because there's just too much. <laughs> we need you saying. Okay, thank you.